Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the day. Coronavirus is now taking over headlines. Uh, we hope that you are all being responsible citizens and uh, avoiding contact with others, unnecessary meetings and the like. I, I know, this is the weirdest what opening you, ever. What are you doing? I've been thinking about coronavirus a lot, Derek. A lot. Everybody has. I know everyone has. This, this podcast is a reprieve. Well, I, that was that was going that was going to be my joke. I, I was going to say if you have ended up being self quarantined, we have so many back episodes of Mere Fidelity uh, to true. keep you entertained. True. That it's better than Netflix. Don't watch Netflix. Listen to Mere Fidelity if you get coronavirus. So uh, it's actually not a joke, and I get that. But uh, there you are. So on some on something totally unrelated. And now for something completely different, that's the line for Monty Python. Uh, we're delighted to have Taylor Patrick O'Neill on the show. Uh, Taylor uh, is a professor at Mount Mercy University, yeah, excuse me, Mount Mercy University in Iowa. Uh, he's the author of Grace Predestination and the Permission <laughs> of Sin. Derek has thrown me totally off today, totally off. A Grace Predestination and the Permission of Sin, a Thomistic Analysis. Um, just released last year. Uh, Taylor, it's great to have you on the show. We're excited to talk with you about this. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. You don't have coronavirus, do you? <laughs> not that I'm aware of. <laughs> and that's the problem. So, okay, so Grace Predestination and the Permission of Sin. Here's my first question. You've written about predestination which makes me wonder, what is it like being an expert on the subject that drives college freshmen more insane who are interested in theology than any other question? <laughs> well, I don't know that I would say I'm an expert, but it is fun um, to drive college freshmen insane, if that's what you're asking. I definitely enjoy that. Um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, again, I don't know that I would say I'm an expert, but it's fun to think about. And uh, I think it's important to think about, even though it's obviously very challenging. Yeah. Okay, so give us an overview of the book. Somewhat inside baseball for 20th century Roman Catholic theology. Um, but yeah, what, what's the project here? Um, yeah, I think um, historically there's, there's, that's probably, there's something to that. Um, so, uh, but I, I think that some of the themes and the sort of speculative theology at play is of interest to even non-Roman Catholics. Um, once you get past the kind of historical context of that the book is written in, um, you know, in the introduction and, and what have you, then you have um, really just dealing with a lot of the same questions that you know, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, whatever, are all dealing with. Um, so basically, the historical context that it comes out of is that in the Catholic tradition, um, uh, just like in, in all Christian traditions, there's been, of course, ongoing debates and conversations about the relationship between predestination, human freedom, and um, the divine goodness. And that really came to a head in the Catholic tradition about 500 years ago. Um, the Jesuits and the Dominicans were kind of uh, at each other's throats. And so the Vatican actually stepped in and created a whole congregation for them to kind of duke it out. And uh, they didn't really come up with an answer. Um, the, the Catholic Church essentially said, you guys are both allowed to hold to your respective ideas. Um, and then the conversation kind of cooled because, you know, people didn't want to uh, bring up restir all sorts of bad feelings and things like that. So just recently, I would say maybe in the last 100 years, um, especially in the Catholic Church, the questions on predestination and grace have sort of resurfaced a bit. Um, and so what I'm trying to address are um, some of the differences that have arisen, especially within the Thomistic um, tradition uh and what is the correct way to understand saint thomas on these questions it's helpful yeah so lay, lay us out i mean I'm, I'm curious to ask like what is the correct way to understand thomas on some of these questions uh how should we think about if we're thinking about uh, a notion of grace and predestination like give us give us the rundown how like what's the correct answer here yeah um well, I think that there's been a number of people within the Catholic tradition that were are uncomfortable 
with what the traditional Thomistic interpretation of Thomas has been. Um, and the concern is that it's a little too close to Calvinism uh, or Reformed theology. Um, what I get nervous from- about anything that's too close to Reformed theology as well, <laughs> let me just say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's why he reads Karl Barth. He wants to get as far away from <laughs> wants to get as far away from it as possible. Uh, that's yeah. Uh, um, sorry to the Barthians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So essentially, what I'm what I'm trying to argue is that um, on the surface, Thomas is closer to Calvin than maybe most Christians and especially most Catholics are aware. Um, I I don't know about any respective traditions, but in Catholicism, there tends to be this kind of response to any discussion of predestination, which is like, well, Catholics don't believe in predestination, so why are we even talking about it? That's just for that's just for Calvinists um, and radical Calvinists at that. Um, and I don't think that's true. I don't think you see that in Augustine, and I don't see think you see that in Thomas. So what I'm trying to argue, or one of the things I'm trying to argue, is that yes, there are some similarities between Thomas and Calvin. Um, and yet there are some really important differences, but the differences, um, oftentimes take place on the level of philosophy and metaphysics. So we have to be really careful in sort of pulling out the nuances, um, because I do think that, I mean, personally, I think that Calvin was incorrect and that Calvin raises a number of, uh, questions about the divine goodness, um, and maybe even about human freedom. So, um, sort of seeing where he might have had a correct intuition, but not going all the way down that rabbit hole uh, is something that I think Aquinas provides us a a whole system uh, and a whole apparatus to deal with. Hmm. I feel like that's a just bait for Derek. (laughs) So, um, so this is where it gets, so I read the the work with great interest, uh, really enjoyed it. It's a really careful piece of work. And if there are any, uh, theology library librarians uh listening pick the volume up for your libraries and if you have a lot of extra cash just pick it up for your own personal library it's it's a it's a really nice volume so that's early plug um that said it, it, i was going along with i go along with so much of it the one thing that was curious was the uh the delineation between calvinism and thomism here because, you know, I'm like a card carrying, you know, Westminster Presbyterian. And I'm just sitting there reading the analysis of Thomas and saying, amen, amen, you know, from the corner. And, and, and this is where it's, inter- it was just interesting for me as uh, just looking at the difference between maybe Thomas and some of Calvin and then the rest of the broader Reformed tradition which the rest of the broader reform tradition, I think you go into it, you look at Westminster and uh, the Westminster Confession and the way it delineates the difference between uh, permission, the upholding of secondary causes, uh, liberty of the will at the, at the you know, uh, created level, all those sorts of things. It's very much comfortable with this sort of Thomistic analysis that you're giving in terms of delineating uh, what you kind of talk about as the line of the good Versus the line of the evil, and even some strong predestinarians like uh, you know Orthodox stalwarts like Francis Turretin, uh, and even Jonathan Edwards, you can find them doing pretty much the same thing, uh, trying to be very careful that um, uh, the agency issue that there's a there's a distinction between. Um, uh, the, in a sense, on switch versus the off switch in terms of the way God relates. I, I, we can get into that more. I would love for you to just outline what you see as the important, um, the important lines of causality that we need to keep straight between God's, uh, providential ordering of good acts and enabling of good acts versus his, um, ordering and yet uh, non-enabling uh, of, of sinful acts and how God is not the author of sin on still a strong predestinarian account like Thomas has. So could you outline that and then and then we can move from there and then Matt I think will want to argue because Matt likes great. to argue. Great, great, that's, that's great. I also love to argue. Um, yeah, so I would say that um, 
the the traditional interpretation of Thomas has been that Thomas moves us to perform good actions via actual graces. So the way that Thomas speaks about um, actual graces and the way that he speaks about uh, graces of habit, like sanctifying grace, is that they are motions. They are motions that are uh, um, being given by God to the creature. When God moves the creature, God moves the creature, the free creature, he moves it. Uh, he moves him or her contingently. So God can move some things in a necessary way, things that happen necessarily, like uh, a rock falling when you you know drop it off a cliff. Um, or he can move free creatures in a contingent manner. So in a way which uh, retains their true creature, uh, creaturely freedom of choice, um, and yet which still infallibly, as he says, brings about the motion that God is giving it. Um, that's all, you know, what uh, I would call the line of good. The line of evil is not at all caused by God. There's no motion. Um, there's no causality whatsoever. Um, however, evil actions are permitted uh, and without that sort of ontologically antecedent permission, the evil actions wouldn't exist. And so you've got very different way that, that um, God is ordering good actions and evil actions, so they can't be considered uh, too similarly. But you still maintain this uh, sort of idea of exhaustive providence where God is really in control of everything that happens, you know, not just human actions, but in control of, you know, um, you know, whether a sparrow falls to the ground, et cetera. Um, I think so, I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, that in a nutshell, at least on the you know surface level, that's Thomas's account of predestination and and all of providence. So, so with let me with that, let me because I, I, I want you to unfold a bit for for listeners. You draw on two specific thinkers uh, as the traditional reading of Thomas for D- Domingo Banez. And then I'm not going to say uh, yeah. Lagrange or yeah. Gary Garagou Lagrange. You yeah. Garagou Lagrange. Okay, so could you uh, draw out the couple of? Could you draw out uh, physical premotion, the importance of that concept, as well mm-hmm. as? Um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on Lagrange, what Garagou Lagrange? Uh, like uh, sufficient, sufficient efficacious. Grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. if you could kind of yep. draw out some of that analysis, that'd be helpful. Yeah. So people can um, get a picture of that. Yeah. So Domingo Banez is um, uh, probably the most famous and maybe the most influential Dominican Thomistic theologian um, on these issues. Um, and when I say Dominican, just to be clear, I mean, you know, not someone from the Dominican Republic or something, but from the order of preachers, right? Uh, the St. Dominic. Um, and uh, Domingo Banez. Um, he starts using this term physical pre-motion, which really is ever after that is taken up by um, most of the traditional Thomists. Thomas never uses the term physical pre-motion. Thomas just uses the term motion. Um, what I argue is that um, as in the case with any kind of living theological tradition, the ideas the, the principles remain the same, but you sometimes start to use more and more nuanced terms as you come up against new questions, new objections. And so this is really, I think, what happens with, with Banyas. Um, physical pre-motion just means a motion given to the creature toward a good action. Um, it's really another way of describing uh, how grace works on the metaphysical level. Um, by physical, he just means that the motion is a real cause. It's not like a moral cause that entices you, but it's a real efficient cause of your good action. And by uh, pre-motion, he just means that um, the motion is antecedent to the good action and antecedent to uh, foreknowledge and antecedent to any kind of um, passivity that God would have sort of looking out at the creature, right? God actually causes the good action and it happens infallibly. So um, I think that's really just an extension, a kind of further nuancing of what Thomas already says. Um, but that's what Banyas means by physical pre-motion. And then um, Gergou Lagrange is really, uh, draws a distinction between what he calls sufficient and efficacious grace. You do find this in Banyas and you do find it in fact, but sort of hidden, but you, f- you see it in, in Aquinas as well. Um, 
And really sufficient and efficacious grace is just applying the Aristotelian notion of act and potency to grace. So what Gergou Lagrange argues is that every time you receive a grace, that grace is efficacious for something, right? God doesn't just sort of give out like graces that don't do anything. So every grace is efficacious for something. Um, anything that is in act always has some manner, some uh, number of potencies uh, beyond what's in act. And so um, any efficacious grace will will bring with it sort of sufficient graces for further good action. So the stock example of this is that, um, a very Catholic example, but uh, if you have the efficacious grace of feeling contrite for your sins, that will come with uh, a sufficient grace for, say, going to confession. Um, going to confession is a separate act, so that would require a separate motion which is really, again, just another way of saying that that sufficient grace, that potency would have to be reduced to act by another motion of God. Um, what Garagu and Banias and Aquinas all say is that God gives sufficient grace for all to be saved. There's a real potency uh, for every single soul to be saved. Um, but not all of those sufficient graces are reduced to efficacious graces. Uh, and so we have the interplay there of, on the one hand, God uh, will or wishes um, that all souls are saved, but not all souls are in fact saved because not all souls are predestined simply uh, by God. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's, yeah, sort of no. No, yeah, that, that, that brings a lot of the issues in play there. And so... Just so people, I, you know, because the book is, is uh, you do some really careful readings of some of these thinkers uh, with really, well, yeah, just kind of clean exposition, um, but there, it's, it's, it's thick conceptually. And so getting, getting some of this out there for our listeners to, to, to hear, it's actually funny. This is the second book in a month that I've read appealing to Garagou Lagrange. There's a second one actually by a... Uh, a Calvinist thinker who has been using him to to uh, tool up reform thought with Lagrange or, and uh, the antecedent and consequent will and mm-hmm, all that. Mm-hmm. So it was funny. Yeah. This was like right after. I'm like, okay, all right. This, this yeah becomes yeah. intuitive. Um, yeah. What what are some of the main criticisms here? And I, I'm wondering, you know, how how you'd clarify here because you say when it comes to the line of evil on all this, um, God does not cause it in any way, but if he's the primary cause of all reality, like everything that exists is upheld by God at every moment, he stops upholding it. It winks out of existence essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, in that sense, how do you, uh, how do you keep clear the fact that, uh, God is sustaining you even in your, sinful motions Mm -hmm. and at the same time he is not uh responsible for that sin himself so like how would you how would you respond to that on that yeah um well saint thomas you know with augustine says that sin doesn't actually have any real being in and of itself right it's a privation of of some being that ought to be there and so saint thomas explicitly says in the summa theologiae that um god even is the cause of the sinful act insofar as it's an act, um, but not insofar as it's sinful, which seems like, you know, a kind of strange distinction. But um, the analogy, I can't, I don't know if, I can't remember if Thomas himself uses it or if just some of the Thomistic commentators use it. Um, but a helpful, I think, illustration of this is that um, someone with a limp, um, someone with say uh, some sort of they've broken their leg or something and they're not able to walk correctly the um the cause of their uh, of their limp is actually a kind of defect or a lack of health in the leg there's nothing wrong with the motion um of you know bipedalism that's causing them to not be able to walk properly it's a defect that is attributable to the leg itself it's just a lack of some health or some good that ought to be there, the integrity of the bone or whatever. Or whatever. Um, and so applying that to sin, what St. Thomas says is that you can't act at all if you're not moved by God, right? So in the same sense that we have to be preserved in being 
not, you know, at every single moment. At any moments that we're acting at all, we have to be being moved by God as the primary cause or the primary mover. Um, but insofar as it's sinful, it's sinful because there's some defect or some lack of being that ought to be there in the act. And that does not come at all from God, but is uh, uh, inhering entirely within the secondary cause, so entirely within the creature. Um, so since, since that isn't a something, it's a something that has to be accounted for in the way that sin has to be accounted for, but it's not a something in the sense that it has a, um, a primary cause in God as if it requires the same kind of motion as a good action. Um, St. Thomas says that we can really attribute that defect simply to the secondary uh, cause, the creature. Um, it doesn't escape God's providential, cause, uh, providential ordering of things because it has to be permitted. Um, if a defect weren't permitted, there wouldn't be a defect. It would mean that God was upholding something in a higher state of integrity. So it has to be antecedently permitted, but a permission, and especially a, a permission of a lack of a good that's not strictly owed, um, is not a cause. So he says that predestination is a cause, but say reprobation or the permission of a sin is not a cause at all. It's simply a sine qua non condition. So it's a condition without which it doesn't happen, but that doesn't make it a cause. So, so when it comes to permission, um, I think it'd be good for you to clarify here a bit, because this is where things get dicey for some folks. Um, lots of folks can talk about permission. Um, and I think this is where you, you start to get to Calvin. Calvin says a lot of things. He's like Augustine. He says one thing, one place, another thing, another <laughs> yeah, place. Depends yeah. on how pissed he is. Um, but, uh, when it comes to permission, how is how would you say Thomas's account of permission differs from? My, I, there's a lot of Molinists that like to talk about permission, mm-hmm. and in our and, and on the Protestant side, Arminians will talk about permission, but it seems that that would be that the way you're talking about it would make him a little nervous. So, I mean, if you want to distinguish a couple of different kinds of permission uh, that you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I, I presume that what might make a Molinist or an Arminian nervous is that um, the permission infallibly brings about what is permitted. So if God permits that I'm going to, um, you know, uh, go out and steal uh, $500 uh, from a gas station, um, it will happen. Um, precisely because what it means for God to permit that is that God is not giving me the graces or at least the natural motions to uphold me in the kind of conscientious thinking and acting which would preclude me from going into a gas station and, and trying to rob you know the, ca- the, the, the guy working at the gas station. Um, so the permission, the permission will infallibly bring about that which is permitted, which, which is a bit different, I think, than from some of the, the theologies that you're talking about, where there's a kind of passivity, um, where God sort of carves out this area within the providential ordering of things, where even he doesn't quite know what's going to happen, or at least he is not at all um, ordering what's going to happen. And he sort of takes his hands off. And now all of a sudden, you've just got uh, natural causes playing out in a way that he's not at all orchestrating. Um, I mean, that's tempting insofar as it releases God from any concern about uh, causing evil uh, or permitting evil or whatever. But obviously, I think there's some real questions for classical theism there. There's some real questions about uh, the multitude of scriptural passages which completely, which clearly speak about God, um, you know, not just acting as a cause amongst other causes, but acting as the real orchestrator behind every single detail of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's really helpful. I mean, when I think about how you've laid out this project, there's it rests on, as a good Thomistic project would, a multitude of very fine distinctions, um, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I, I appreciate immensely. I also think for many of our listeners will be very foreign. Um, the language of act and potency and, and a lot of the Aristotelian substructure here is just not how we tend to think about our relations to the world these days. Um, and I think one, like when I think about the sort of what's beneath all of this, it seems like there's two things, two doctrines. One would be a notion of concursus, right? That God is acting in our acting, which I think is, 
as a just concept, very foreign to many of us in our contemporary experience and world. That's just not a thought that most of us have, even about our doing of good, that God is mm -hmm. acting mm -hmm. in our acting. And it seems like the other central thing that this hangs on is an account of uh, creation as intrinsically graced. Uh, so you've talked a lot about God sort of giving these graces to do these things. Um, and I think that's also foreign to many of us. Uh, grace in terms of uh, the things that are motivating me to do good. Uh, mm -hmm. We tend to think about grace in other ways, the, in more sort mm -hmm. of ex explicitly redemptive ways. Um, yep. So I, 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 I'm, do you think that those two principles are as foreign to us? And if so, um, how do you talk about this in ways that uh, can latch on to sort of people's ordinary intuitions? Or is it just mm -hmm. we've got to all like go back and read our Aristotle and become mm -hmm. pre-modernists and there's, you know, <laughs> the only way forward is the way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, clearly Thomas's um, handling of these things is based in Aristotle. I don't think that everyone has to go back to Aristotle to um, understand what Thomas is arguing here. I think a lot of the distinctions that Thomas is using from Aristotle are fairly common sense. Um, it doesn't require, you know, uh, buying into the entire Aristotelian apparatus. I think that the two things that you laid out are, are both really sort of crucial themes. Um, I think the second one that you mentioned, that is sort of different ways of thinking about grace, probably reflect um, the, yeah, just some of the differences between Catholic and Protestant views about grace and justification and sanctification and different emphases there. Um, the first distinction I think is absolutely crucial. And that distinction between, as you call it, I think you used to call it concursus, um, in the Catholic tradition, we tend to call it more compatibilism versus non-compatibilism, but you know, same idea, obviously, uh, libertarian versus non-libertarian. Um, I see that, yeah, I see that thread is really interesting because that doesn't fall along denominational lines. So there are people within the Catholic tradition who are compatibilists and people who are non-compatibilists, and clearly there are people within the Protestant traditions which are compatibilists and non-compatibilists. Um, so that's an interesting thread that runs, I think, throughout all of Christian thought. Um, one of the things I would argue is that I think it's um, important to maintain, obviously it's kind of a principle that's undergirding my whole uh, uh, thought on this, that compatibilism, that concursus between um, providence, divine causality, and our uh, free creaturely actions. I think, I think that's necessary for any kind of classical theism at all. Um, to posit that there's a kind of competition between God as a cause and me as a cause is really to turn God into a, just another kind of cause in the universe. Um, and I think that comes only with serious, I, I mean, to be frank, I think it comes with turning God into something that's no longer God. And I think that's something I'd be concerned about. It's to, it's to embrace Immanuel yeah. Kant. I mean, to put yeah. a, not yeah, too fine a yeah. point on it, right? Like Kant breaks the doctrine of concursus on my reading of, you know, sweeping historical generalizations. But I think it's Kant who really does fail to understand how the doctrine of concursus works. And actually, Chris Insull at uh, Durham uh, has advanced this thesis in, I think, a really effective way. Um, Derek, you were going to say? No, I was going to say that, that concursus... Uh, that non-competitive causality is is key. It is interesting also that the, the third thing I was going to note was how much of this depends on, again, a the, the doctrine of God as simple, the doctrine of God as immutable, uh, the, the argument against something like a generalized or kind of bare permission of, hey, I'm going to let, I'm going to set up a system, let the thing go and kind of stick my hand in and keep key moments. Um, uh, that puts God in the passenger seat for large sections of, of human history, waiting to see what we're going to do and then responding uh, and then actually having that um, change God's knowledge, change God's will, uh, change God. And so again, you have you, this whole thing, as you'd expect with Thomas, flows from his doctrine of God as 
immutable, simple, uh, perfect in himself prior to antecedent to all things. And so um, that you outlining that that's that this whole thing was extremely intuitive for the for the back and forth the the arguments you had going between uh Marin Sola and I never know how to say Maritain. Is it Marit? Yeah, yeah, Maritain, Maritain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, depends on whether how French you I, want to be about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um it just it was a lot of rehash, you know, if you you look, you know, Arminian and Calvinist debates on yeah. whether or not God what, the, the fundamental question of why God elects or doesn't elect, is it fundamentally rooted in the creature or in God's will? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would lo- love for you to kind of draw out some of that. And then in a sense, where, <laughs> why isn't, why isn't that, why isn't the appeal to mystery here a cop out? Because you know <laughs> it's, it's intuitive for me in discussing election with folks, um, to, to think, well, the, the causal joint, God's, God's relation to, to causality, and, uh, and, then, and then the ultimate mystery of why he does all things uh, and not other things, um, that seems like a logical place to think, ah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come up against a wall here. But I, you know, I, yeah. I appreciated some of where you went with some of this, and so you draw that out a little bit. Why is, that, why is mystery not a cop out there? Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's a concern that, well, if we just, you know, apply mystery, then um, we haven't actually answered the question, uh, which the pertinent question of some of the objectors that I deal with in the book, like, as you, you mentioned, Marin Sola, Jacques Maritain, um, who was good friends with Father Garrigou Lagrange, at least for a while. Um, they had a falling out, but not over this issue. It was over sort of political things as always, you know, it's like falling out over politics is so ridiculous when you could fall out over theology. Not that I want them to fall out over theology, but you know, more important things. Uh, uh, but, um, their concern is that if you just use mystery, you, you can't use mystery to, um, mask a God who indirectly causes evil by permitting people to fall into not just sinful behavior, but behavior which ultimately will lead to their their damnation. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Maritan likens it to, you know, um, a, a parent has a kind of responsibility to make sure that a child stays safe. And a parent couldn't just sort of let a child wander off into the road and go, well, I didn't do anything. You know, I'm not a cause here. Uh, that wouldn't, that would be seen as a kind of, um, uh, a guilt by omission in a certain way. Um, I think that there's a few things at play here, which are important. One of them is that, okay, I do think that's an important question and it has to be answered. Um, whether an exhaustive answer is possible or not, we at least have to try our best, right? Um, one, one thing at play is that the answer that a lot of folks give in trying to solve that problem is to sort of, uh, again, I think frankly, to try to answer that question at the price of getting rid of classical theism, uh, turning God into a kind of passive, uh, uh, being who doesn't really have control or at least who gives up control over large swaths of this story that he's telling in creation so that he's not morally responsible. Um, and I don't think that's a proper response. We can't sort of respond to questions about evil by just saying that God isn't quite God, or at least not all the time. Um, but I think that if we presuppose that it's true that some are saved and some are not saved, and we maintain classical theism and follow it to its logical conclusions, I do think you're right. We run up to a place that just has to be mysterious. And it's mysterious for the precise reason that um, the question as to why one person is saved and another person is not saved, I mean, there's a way in which we can say, well, of course, the person who's not saved is sort of self-chosen sinful actions and they they are themselves refusing heaven okay but why does god permit that at all um saint thomas says well that's when you're starting to get to the point of trying to understand the divine wisdom and to understand why individual things align in the way they do really can't be possible unless you can see the whole 
unless you can see the whole plan as coming together, you know, as creatures may be able to see it, um, you know, in the second coming on Judgment Day. But we just don't have that kind of vision right now. And so any answer which tries to um, pack all of these things into a neat box and leaves no room for mystery is, it's a good sign that that couldn't possibly be a correct answer. Um, and this is where, not to sort of go off on a tangent, but David Bentley Hart, I think, has gone too far in that direction with his most recent work where he's, he's tried to give a neat answer. And it's, it's in a nice little package and there's a bow and everything's tied together and there's simply no place for mystery. And I think it's a kind of irony, to be, <laughs> to be frank, that um, yeah. you know, as, as a Thomist to be arguing for, well, there's not enough mystery here against an Eastern Orthodox thinker is kind of a weird uh, <laughs> a reversal of things. That's really good. I, I, the, 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 the counterpart um, is, is the exact same, the exact same impulse to, to have a, a clean little, a clean little box um, you see in, in, the, in, in the opposite move, which is, you know, open theism or process theism of like, okay, we get that argument and then we're just going to reduce God as far back as, as, as we can get him from yep. evil, from these things. And I think you're, you're, you're what the, once you start the train of like, okay, well let's clear space for God to not be responsible for these things or not over, you know, you're pushed in one of those two directions of like, well, okay, well let, let's, it all works out in the end universalism and you have to run over a bunch of scripture to do that. Or, open theism or uh, process theism where again, you have to run a bunch of run over a bunch of scripture to get there. Yep. But you, you're, you're, you're forced in those directions. If, if that thought keeps on, I have to have the clean tidy explanation on this that equalizes everything. So Matt, you thought there. Well, I was, I was just going to say, I also have long thought that the view that you're articulating is the um, theological, architecture behind uh, the doctrine of double effect. So I think this cashes mm -hmm. out morally in really important ways. I think if you, so the doctrine of double effect for those who are listening at home is this notion that you can accept but not intend morally bad consequences uh, to action. So if I'm intending something good, but I also know that doing that will bring about some uh, consequences that I wouldn't want at all. Um, depending on the nature of the situation and whether those consequences are like not too weighty and so on and so forth, there are a number of tests that you can put down. It's licit for you to do that. So uh, it's, a, it's a really important principle within moral reasoning. And it just seems to me that if you give up the kind of notion of uh, concursus that you've laid out and this understanding that uh, God can be acting for good even in places where there is are wrongs being done, but he's not intentionally acting. Like if you give up that picture, then the doctrine of double effect goes away as well. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree that any, any kind of positing of passivity is really just ending up in a kind of process or open theism. Um, and I don't think that it makes a difference. Well, the little wiggle room that I see a lot of uh, theologians, uh, the little nuance they try to add to, to fix it, and this, this pertains to the Catholic thinkers in, in my book. It pertains to Protestant thinkers that I'm aware of, like uh, uh, Bruce Reichenbach. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Reichenbach and people like Alvin Plantinga and even C.S. Lewis speaks this way. Mm -hmm. um, that, well, it's... It, open theism or kind of passivity in in the divine is okay if it's kind of chosen by God, a kind of self-imposed impotence on God. And I don't think that really makes much of a difference at all. Um, you know, to say that God chooses to be less than God um, isn't really any better of an answer than just God is sort of passive and uh, open theism being correct. Yeah. There's still... There's still the on-off element. It's still volition, even if it's a volitional choice. You're still, you're still, in, he's still in control of whether or not to impose himself at any moment, unless he's just a radically reduced. I can't impose myself, which is which is where um, somebody like Thomas J. Ord goes, and and it's 
it's actually just God can't do other than not be effective in that way. And so, um, yeah, but that that's, yeah, well, there's, I mean, we don't speak this way. I, I just wonder why, why, um, we feel comfortable sometimes speaking this way about, about goodness, but not about being. So no one sort of supposes that it's possible that God, I've never seen anyone argue this, that it's possible that God could carve out an arena wherein uh, creatures can still exist without God sort of directly, uh, causally being responsible for their existing, yeah. right? Not just at a point in time, but like here and now. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, and if goodness is essentially convertible with being, right, they're, they're really just two ways of describing the same thing, which is God, the divine nature, being sort of expressed uh, to creatures. Um, how could goodness work in a totally separate way, as if God could sort of take his hands off and passively see how creatures are going to act, which means sometimes they fail, but also means that sometimes creatures are doing good actions without any difference. Yeah in what God is doing, um, which is actually what Molina, uh, who's one of Domingo Bañez's and Thomas's sort of big objectors here, he says that two, two uh, humans could be given the exact same amount, the exact same kind of grace, and God sort of passively sits back and sees one of them will do better with the grace and the other one will do worse, even though there's not a difference between them regarding the divine influence. In fact, he goes even further and says someone can receive less grace, lesser of degree or kind, then another and the person who receives more grace fall and the person who receives less grace uh, succeed in, in performing some good action. I, I'm wondering, I, I always wonder how that could possibly be the case. Either God is the singular source of goodness and all good things, uh, good things insofar as they exist, good actions are either, those things either only exist because they're participating and receiving their goodness from God or God is not the only singular source of, uh, of goodness. And, and humans can choose good and sort of stir up good within themselves that does not come from God. But that's, of course, not scriptural at all. No, and, and, this, I mean, this, and this is where it comes back to the question of the, 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 I mean, this is, like I said, you're preaching in the choir here on this. And this is why, as a reform guy, I was like, <laughs> this, is, this is our stuff. We're actually same team here. But that whole line of logic goes yeah. immediately to, okay, so what distinguishes them? Is it God or them? And if the and if it's them, then right. can't you boast? Isn't there room for bragging? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. used grace better than you did. I saw it more clearly yep, than exactly. you did. I, I I activated that potency better than you did. Uh, and so yeah. and so this the, the line between the the saved and the unsaved really is about who figured out how to use grace better and 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 aren't you shouldn't yeah. you feel so good about that yeah and and so there's that that yeah there's a that loss of grace in that moment yeah yeah there's a great little uh there's a footnote in Gergu lagrange somewhere where he quotes a sort of uh earlier dominican theologian uh norbert del prado and it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing where it's called the prayer of the molinist and the prayer is, it's sort of a long prayer, but it's kind of this prayer of like, thank you, Lord, for foreseeing that in this situation, I would do better than my neighbor, even though I've received less grace from you. you know, <laughs> da, da, da. It's, it's funny. And it's a kind of argument ad absurdum for, uh, you know, Molinism, Arminianism, et cetera. Um, but no, I think, I think you're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, I would, I would say that, um, of course, when we do good, we do participate yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's not as if it's just being done to us, but because of this idea of primary and secondary causality, yeah, the secondary cause is a real cause, yeah. but it cannot act unless it's first being moved by the primary cause. And so you have a way of saying, yeah, there's good being done in me. Yeah. It's not just being done to me or externally. It's being done in and through me, yeah. but I can't boast at all because without God moving me to do it, it would never happen. It's, it's mm -hmm. ontologically, philosophically impossible for it to happen without God giving me all of that goodness. And, and this is something that's been really important over the last few years. One of the reasons I was able to actually go reformed, funny enough, was reading uh, Jill's is it Gilson or Gilson? I, all these French Thomas names that I'm... Yeah, yeah. Again, to, how French do you want uh, to be? Gilson. Gilson. Okay, yeah. so Gilson on the Christian philosophy yeah. of St. Thomas Aquinas and, and, and the section there on Thomas activating, uh, on God 
uh, as primary and secondary cause. And the, and the reconciliation in that way of freedom and sovereignty as the act above and mm-hmm. beyond and, and activating all our acts. But realizing that that actually is in the classical Reformed tradition, you get guys like Turretin and Vermigli and all of them using the exact same terminology. They're assuming the exact same apparatus that you know that you talk about the divided and the composite senses uh, for, for that, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm, you know you've mm-hmm. got stuff like well the, the decree doesn't actually flow in to the act, and the fact that he's sustaining us in being, sustaining our wills, all that. That is one thing I will say at the pop level. Reformed folks need to. Uh, I think I think they're seeing that more as we go back to a lot of the sources. Often it has been downplayed in terms of freedom, distinguishing between freedom of the will with respect to soteriology and like the bondage of the will in terms of our ability to uh, respond to grace uh, in a given moment, that sort of thing, versus the metaphysical still sustaining of created integ- like enough integrity that what you are willing is being willed contingently and freely at like the metaphysical yeah. level. And such that like, okay, you may be a depraved sinner, but at the same time, you you, in any given moment could, you have the ability and potency to do something other. You're not an automata. You're not. Yeah. And so having that category, having those categories is something that it's important to recover. And so this, it's helpful in that sense to to get that going. Um, Matt, did you have a question here before we wrapped up? Yeah, so I do have one question, and and forgive me in advance, this is my Bardian moment. I've been storing it up the whole show. Um, but, you know, one of the things <laughs> that I really appreciate about Bart is his doctrine of providence. I've not spent a lot of time with the doctrine of providence, so, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but um, reading Bart's treatment in the dogmatics was, for me, in certain ways really helpful, in part because one of the things that he does is he basically says, like, look, if we're going to understand the doctrine of concursus, we should look at the most obvious place where divine and human action is happening at the same time, which is the person of Jesus Christ. You've got two wills there. Um, they're working in consort together. And so we should spend a lot of time reflecting about that and reframe our understanding of cause and effect and kind of purge it from this Aristotelianism. Uh, in light of that, whether or not you accept that part of it. I'm curious about, um, methodologically, the place you think Christology has in understanding the uh, relationship between God's acting and our acting, and whether we should turn first in that, and what you think the pastoral differences might be um, based on sort of where we turn, whether we turn to the doctrine of God and God's simplicity and these sorts of categories, or whether we turn to Christology what you think is good and bad about either one of those moves? Yeah, I I think that starting with Christology is a great idea, and it can be a a really helpful point of departure precisely for what you mentioned, that in the one person of Christ we see the perfect compatibility um, between the divine will and a human will. I think where you depart to some extent is determined or where you ought to depart is some, to some extent determined by what kind of questions you have um, and what kind of objections you're responding to. So um, I think that Thomas, Thomas, Thomas does deal with these things um, in the Tertia parts of the Summa Theologiae, and it's in a way which is holistic. So it presupposes some of the uh, more basic philosophical and theological principles which have come earlier. And so the Christological treatment is really a kind of, it's the culmination and the consummation of everything that he's dealt with earlier. So it could be a great point of departure since it is the sort of peak uh, historical event uh, and reality which allows us to consider this this compatibilism. Um, On the other hand, I think it also can sometimes make sense to start on the philosophical level, especially since I think the the concern of libertarianism um, can be met 
entirely on the philosophical level. And if so, if someone isn't buying into all of the same premises that you have on Christology or something, then having that debate on the, on the philosophical level can be helpful. I mean, it, to a large extent, a lot of this is predicated uh, upon agreeing on a definition of what liberty and what freedom are. Um, and, um, and looking at how it is the case that God, that, well, what the will is in the first place, what, what the will is and what it means for the will to be an intellectual appetite, as Thomas says, and how it could be the case that the will is moved towards something infallibly, but still resistibly. Um, and sometimes sin can be a helpful thought experiment here uh, in a way that we never see sin, of course, in our Lord. There's just perfect obedience. And yet, with the rest of us, there's very imperfect obedience. Um, so I, I think the point of departure is really depending on what kind of questions you want to you wanna answer, but I think you're correct in pointing out that the Christological element is the kind of consummation of all of these thoughts, and that needs to be the peak. And if the, the deepest contemplation about compatibilism, I think, does have to take place there. You're right. And I think Aquinas would agree with you if he were with us, and that's why the Tertia Pars, the end of the Summa Theologiae, is the Christological section, because for him, that's where everything comes home. That is a very helpful answer, and indeed, this has been a very uh, constructive conversation, and I've learned a lot from it. So thank you, Taylor. We appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. For those of you who are listening at home, we're so grateful for your time and attention. We hope that you've benefited from this tour of the doctrine of predestination (laughs) and how God's action relates to our acting even when we sin. Uh, If you're interested in picking up a copy of the book, the title again is Grace, Predestination, and the Permission of Sin, available from bookstores everywhere, we hope, or if not, at least from Amazon.com, so do get yourself a copy. We have other shows lined up for this spring. We are super excited about the direction that Mere Fidelity is headed, and we're grateful for your support. If you'd like to join the band of supporters, the link to do so is in the show notes at Muir Orthodoxy. We've got some great guests coming up, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, don't leave us behind in the midst of chaos and craziness. We hope to continue to provide conversations about how to live faithfully in this world. Until next time then, this has been Mere Fidelity.